Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 21. Acts 21 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. While you're turning there, I will mention two things. This week was a special anniversary. This week uh, past, uh, Pastor Scott has been serving grace for five years as of this week. He spent his fifth anniversary at our congregation and we are grateful to God for him. Also, I should mention to you, Jeff Midler and Joel Potit are here and today is the last day they came to church as a single couple. So they're getting married next Sunday afternoon, and uh, that will be a day of great joy for them and their families. Now, Acts 21. We are revisiting this morning an issue that we have seen before in the book of Acts. In fact, it's one of the key issues that comes up over and over again in the book of Acts. The issue is the relationship, how do followers of Jesus who are Jewish and followers of Jesus who are Christian, uh, Gentiles, how do they get together in the church? How can this clash of cultures within the early church, how does this work out? We've seen this a lot in the book of Acts. Now, to prepare us to get into this study again, I want you to imagine a scene in your mind. I want you to picture a man, I'm, I'm going to call him Gary, and Gary is a Christian, he's a member of his church, he's married, he has a couple kids, uh, Gary works for Cisco. He's a truck driver. And one of the things that Gary does uh, every week is that he delivers uh, frozen fries and mozzarella sticks and uh, frozen chicken wings to a bar on the edge of town. Uh, it's uh, a bar that has a very specific clientele. In fact, if you ask the locals, they'll tell you it's a biker bar. Not really the place where the deacons are going to have their next meeting. So... One day, Gary was making a delivery, and um, as he was closing the doors of his truck to get in it to leave after he dropped everything off, he saw one of the bikes that was sitting out in the parking lot, and it caught his eye for some reason that day, and he was admiring it. He was looking at it and, and, and checking it out a little bit. He was looking at it, in fact, so intensely that he didn't hear the door open behind him, and it wasn't until he heard the voice, he was aware of, of somebody standing behind him, that he heard this voice say, do you like it? And Gary turned around and he saw a guy who was 6'3", maybe 6'4", and everything that you could picture in your mind that would be stereotypical about a biker bar clientele was true of this man. He, uh, there was a bandana tied around his head, and underneath the bandana came out his flowing gray hair, way well past his shoulders. His beard was down to his chest. He had on jeans and boots and a black T-shirt and a leather jacket and a, uh, a studded leather belt. Uh, his arms were covered with tattoos. Gary kind of stuttered for just a minute uh, looking at the man, and, and as Gary did, the guy laughed, and he introduced himself. Well, what do you call a six-foot-four biker. He said, my name is Tiny. So um, <laughs> Tiny wasn't nearly as rough as he looked at first. Um, in fact, Tiny was almost friendly. It probably, probably had to do with the fact that Gary first met Tiny in the context of admiring his motorcycle. Well, you won't, you won't actually believe what happens. In the course of time, over a few months, Gary and Tiny, they saw each other more and more often as Gary was making his... Uh, deliveries, um, I, their friendship, you know, they, they started, they talked about motorcycles, and Gary told them about the motorcycle he had when he was a kid, uh, when he was a teenager, and how he'd like to get another one someday, and they talked about lots of different things, and eventually, Gary shared with him his faith in Jesus Christ, and 
contrary to what you might expect, oh, that's a phrase we should talk about sometime, contrary to what you might expect, Tiny believed and became a follower of Christ. So uh, Gary invited Tiny to church, and on the appointed day, Gary was standing outside his church, and Tiny came. You could hear Tiny coming from a mile away, the rumble of his majestic motorcycle. And he pulled up to church, and he parked between a minivan and a Toyota Camry. That's the closest he had been to those vehicles in about 50 years. So he parked, and he said hi to Gary. He walked inside, and immediately he knew something was wrong. Something was wrong with him. No one else in the church had any leather on. Uh, He didn't see any other bandanas. His hair was longer than most of the women's hair in the church. Lots of people had on ties and skirts and dresses. Uh, He sat down on a wickedly uncomfortable bench that people sometimes call a pew, and uh, things started. He missed. He missed a lot of what happened during the meeting because these people, they seemed to speak this own sort of secret Christian language. And and the music, uh, Tiny doesn't listen to pop music very often. It sounded a lot like pop music. He sat there. Um, he learned a couple things about the Bible during the service. People were generally very friendly to him and welcoming, but Tiny left church thinking, well, he was a little uncomfortable, and he was convinced that he had made a lot more people in the congregation uncomfortable. So what should Tiny do? Well, um, maybe Tiny should go find a different church, a biker church. I'm sure that they exist. Um, Tiny should go and find people who dress like him and talk like him and act like him. Um, that idea is actually uh, was very popular among a certain segment of the church growth movement back in the 90s. Um, you, should f- you should focus on one key demographic. The way to grow a church is to find one key demographic and aim for that, and then your church will grow. You'll attract all the people like that. If, if you're keeping score on these things, it's called the homogeneous unit principle of church growth. Well, Tiny could do that. Alternatively, Tiny could change, couldn't he? He could go buy a minivan and some khakis and a few ties, and he could get a haircut and start listening to Chris Tomlin CDs. And um, most, and he'd be in, in good shape. He'd fit right in. Most people think that's what being a Christian means anyway, isn't it? You just... You've got to give up your wild living and your leather and your motorcycle and become a white American suburbanite, and then you'll be a Christian. That's actually not Christianity. We don't believe that's what Christianity is. And actually, that view of religion has a lot more in common with what Islam does than what Christianity does. Maybe there's a third alternative here we should think about for Tiny. Maybe Tiny could stay at the church and be Tiny, except a Jesus-loving Tiny. Um, what would need to happen for Tiny to stay in this uh, congregation and for him not to leave every week feeling like he'd freaked somebody else out? It takes some flexibility. It takes some flexibility on Tiny's part. It, It takes some adaptability on the part of everyone in order to make it work well. It would call for the sort of flexibility that is modeled for us in this passage that is before us in Acts 21. We're going to sit under the authority of verses 17 through 26 today, and I want to ask you this question as we look at it. How flexible are you? Um, Why are you flexible? What should you be flexible about? 
Well, those are good questions. Now, before I read it, let's remember where we are in this text. Um, Acts 21 describes some events that took place in about A.D. 57, nearly 25 years after Christ has been crucified and rose again. And his followers have spent these last 25 years fulfilling the mission that he gave them. Uh, They were to tell others about him, to testify about him, to, to call people to follow Jesus. They were supposed to start in Jerusalem and go all the way around the world to the ends of the earth. This morning, actually, I'm not sure how much you've thought about this, but our presence here this morning is a sign of the faithfulness of those early followers and then the people who followed them and followed them because we're pretty far from Jerusalem. We're about at the ends of the earth in comparison to where Jesus was when he talked to his disciples 2,000 years ago. And here we are, a Jesus-following community. Now, the path that we've been following here most closely belongs to the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, Christians um, who come from the non-Jewish population. They're Greeks and Romans and Cretans and Syrians and Cilicians and Bithynians. We've met all those people along the way. Paul has visited as many of them as he could. He always starts in a synagogue. You know that. He goes into a synagogue first and talks about how Jesus is God's Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied. Eventually he gets kicked out of the synagogue in every town he goes to, and he ends up at some lecture hall where he speaks and calls people to follow Jesus. Um, Among the challenges, we've talked about this two or three times, among the challenges that Paul faced, though, in all of those churches is he would have people who were Jewish, who had been following the law and uh, the law of Moses and were now followers of Jesus and Gentiles who didn't follow the law of Moses who were now followers of Jesus and they came together in one church and they had wildly, wildly different customs. And Paul had a very basic rule for them. This is the rule he had. As long as everyone understands that those customs are not gospel issues, as long as you understand that that you don't get saved, you don't become a follower of Jesus by following the rules, or you don't become more like Jesus by following those uh, rules, uh, then, then you can live out your convictions. Everybody should live out their conviction. As long as you understand, those convictions are not how you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's his basic rule. Now Paul's returned to Jerusalem, and here's what has happened. Look at the text. Acts 21:17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law? They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple 
to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Let's go over the details of the story here. What's driving this story, the problem that's set before Paul, is rumors. Rumors. Rumors that are threatening the unity of the church. There are, in Jerusalem, thousands of uh, followers of Jesus who continue to follow the law of Moses. They circumcise, they eat kosher, they follow the Sabbath, they even offer sacrifices. They're zealous for the law. That's an important phrase in verse 20 there, zealous for the law. That, it's almost a technical phrase. It's a phrase that developed between the time that the Old Testament was completed and the New Testament came when Palestine was invaded by foreign groups the people, the Jews who were there who really stood against the pressure and, and with, withstood the pressure to abandon the law, they stood up for it. They were zealous for the law in the face of Gentile opposition. Um, Paul, these people, thousands of them in Jerusalem, have heard that Paul is advising Jewish Christians elsewhere not to follow the law. Now, we can kind of understand where some of these rumors come from. You read the book of Galatians, and in Galatia they had that problem. There were some who had the problem who believed that in order to actually be a follower of Jesus, you had to be circumcised. You had to follow the law. And in, in response to that belief, Paul was vicious. Oh, he was vicious. He, he went after them. You don't have to follow the law in order to become a Christian and, and in light of that, he said circumcision means nothing when it comes to becoming a follower of Jesus. Well, you can see how the rumors would come, right? Maybe there, then there was Paul's actions. Scott read a few minutes ago about how in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, when I'm with the Greeks, I live like a Greek. When I'm with the Jews, I live like a Jew. Paul apparently was flexible in what he did depending on where he was. Every Jew who was living outside of Palestine had to accommodate in some way. Paul just didn't seem as bothered by the accommodations that he had to make as maybe some people thought he should have been. So here's the proposal. There's this rumor. Here's the proposal. I wish I knew more details about it, but the, the elders wanted Paul to make a very visible and very public showing of his obedience to the law. So uh, show that he respected it, that, that he believed that a follower of Jesus could respect the law too. So they asked him to pay for the purification sacrifices of four men who've taken a vow. You take a vow, and one of the ways that the vow comes to an end under the law is you offer sacrifices. And they said to Paul, we have four guys, their time of uh, the end of their, their uh, vow is coming. Um, would you, you just go, go and pay for their vow and in fact join them in their purification? Maybe these four guys had taken a Nazarite vow, and one of the elements of a Nazarite vow is you don't cut your hair, but you end the vow by cutting your hair. In fact, you had to take your hair to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice. Maybe that's what's going on. Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. Maybe he's going to join in with them, and his vow and their vow will end at the same time. That's a possibility. It's also possible that faithful Jews who were outside of Palestine, outside of the Holy Land, for any period of time, living among the Gentiles, as, as careful as those faithful Jews might have been, you just know they had to be, uh, 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 their, their sanctification, their holiness, they had to be defiled in some way. They had to have some sort of, of contamination. 
So it was customary for Jews who had been outside of the land when they returned to Jerusalem to go through a special washing ritual, a purification ritual. Maybe they're asking Paul to do that. I'm not sure. Regardless, it was a very public, very noticeable display that Paul had high regard for the law of Moses. Now, Paul did it. Before he did it, though, they clarified with him. Verse 25 is very important. They, they clarified. They said, now, Paul, remember what we decided. Paul was there. They remind him anyway. <laughs> remember, Paul, what we decided back in Acts 15 that um, you don't need to follow the law in order to become a Christian. And we wrote the Gentiles a letter like that. So we're not asking you to do this because we believe this is how you follow Jesus. But this would be good for the unity of, of the church. And Paul goes. Um, I think that this passage here is a story that shapes us, it helps us, it gives us some values to hold on to when we encounter Christianity's cultural diversity. Um, In fact, that's, I think, the point of this passage, and I want to share those with you this morning, some values that we hold on to when we embrace or when we see cultural diversity within Christianity. Here's the first one. Number one, we appreciate Christianity's cultural diversity. We appreciate it. We welcome it. We admire it. We love it. We love it for Jesus' sake. Uh, Back in January when we first visited this issue, we were in Acts chapter 11, and I quoted some statistics to you that come from Richard Bauckham, who is a theology teacher in Scotland. And he wrote a book called The Bible and Mission. And listen to what he said, some statistics. 90% of the world's Muslims live in one part of the world, one swath, the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia, 90%. 88% of the world's Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of the world's Hindus live in India. But listen to this in contrast. 25% of the world's Christians live in Europe. 25% live in Central and South America. 20% live in Africa. 15%, and it's growing by leaps and bounds, live in Asia. And between 12 and 15% live in North America. Christianity is the one major religion that is spread around the world like that. In fact, Bauckham said, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Secularism, which is the only allowed public religion in our country, secularism and Islam are imperialistic worldviews. The Quran, you're not supposed to translate the Quran into any other language. To read it truly, you have to learn Arabic to read it. And, and many Muslims insist that you embrace certain cultural practices in order to be a faithful Muslim. Secularism is, is odd because on the surface it's all about cultural diversity. Um, it, it wants to see all sorts of different cultural expressions, uh, food and clothing and, and um, music. So secularism will tell you you should dress and eat and sing like a Zulu or a Han or a Latino. Secularism loves that. But really, everybody should understand that God and spirits don't exist and your cultural beliefs are just silly myths. That's what secularism does. Islam does. It flattens culture. The reason, though, that we appreciate the cultural diversity of Christianity and we don't work to flatten it is because our cultural diversity is a sign of the work of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation says that Jesus has rescued people from every tribe, language, people, 
and nation. And we believe that is beautiful and should be celebrated. You could tell the story of the world by the boundaries that we build. Um, boundaries that we build between ethnicities and nations and cultures. Those boundaries are, are fueled often by pride. I'm white. I'm better than you. I speak English. I'm better than you. And, and, and these, this, this, these borders, these boundaries that we build, fueled by pride, erupt into wars and violence and genocide. Jesus has come, though, and he has broken down the barrier separating God and human beings. He, he removed our guilt and his shame when he took the punishment for us on the cross that we deserve because of a rebellion against God. You know, before we had horizontal problems with one another, we had a vertical problem with, with God. Right? Let's talk about that vertical problem for just a minute. It might be hard to tell this morning, uh, but I have a perfect record before God of obeying him absolutely perfectly. It's my record before him. Um, it's, I didn't earn this perfect record. Uh, Jesus gave it to me. It was his. If we were sitting in a classroom, I'm the one who failed every single test, didn't turn any homework in, have been late every single day. I, I'm on the verge of being a, a total, absolute failure. Jesus is in class with me. He's always there. He turns in everything on time. He gets straight A's. And the nice thing about Jesus is he's not a jerk about it like some people are, right? He, he, he met every single requirement. And he took my failing report card and he suffered in my place on the cross and I got his perfect record. Completely passing grade. I wonder if Jesus has given you his perfect record. It's a gift that you receive by his kindness, by his grace, through faith, by taking Jesus at his word and trusting him that he's the one who perfectly obeyed God and died the penalty that we should have died. See, when you recognize that sin, when you recognize and you see that, that our reconciliation with God, our forgiveness of our sins, life our gifts from God's grace and that grace is the only way that anyone in any culture is going to receive eternal life, life it eviscerates the pride that divides us. It, it means that boundaries that we build that are so important for establishing our hierarchy are, are, are wiped away. Jesus saves all kinds of people, people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of cultures and all kinds of ethnicities, the fact that there are Latino and Zulu and Han and uh, American suburbanite followers of Jesus is a triumph of his inestimable grace. He saves people, all kinds of people. He really did. People from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. Oh, we appreciate Christianity's cultural diversity. It, it points to the triumph of his grace. Now, second here. This passage teaches us when we think about these differences between us. Secondly, we value our unity with one another. We value our unity with one another. It's not sp mentioned specifically in the text, but this is what's driving the Apostle Paul here. This chapter is the meeting of the titans of the early church. You have the champion of Gentile Christianity, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And you have James. James, the stalwart in Jerusalem, the leader of the Jewish branch of the church. And, and boy, they get together and it could have been hot. But these two men, they're not at war at all. There's no sense of that in the text at all. In fact, they love each other. They, they, they're rejoicing with one another in generosity and they support and love each other and they counsel one another and they receive the counsel. There's cooperation. What's driving this passage is Paul's commitment to the unity of the church. It would be a tremendous loss. Oh, it would be a shame on the gospel if Tiny had to leave that church and find someone somewhere else to worship. It would be a terrible shame. It wouldn't be in any sense Christian for him to go somewhere else where he would find people that were like him. In fact, it's, it would be a powerless, loveless sham. You don't have to be a Christian to get along with people like you. It's natural that members of the aquarium club would like one another. If you like aquariums, you like fish, you like other people who like aquariums. It'd be natural that bikers would get along and that they would enjoy talking about their bikes. We would expect that. That would be normal. It's normal for jocks to hang out with jocks. It's normal for nerds to hang out with nerds. There's nothing miraculous about a Christian high school cafeteria. Yet what is miraculous... What does require the fruit of the Spirit, that is a sign of the reality of the transforming work of Jesus, is when aquarium club members love bikers, for Jesus' sake. And jocks hang out with nerds because they share a commitment to Jesus Christ. That's when you need to have the fruit of the Spirit to avoid giving them offense or to agree together on what's good or to forgive one another when you violate some sacred aquarium rule. What we see here in the text is another reminder of the communal nature of following Jesus in the book of Acts. The call to follow Jesus in Acts is the call to follow him with others. If you're a member of the congregation, you are in covenant with other members of the congregation. And the expectation of that covenant is that it calls you to alter your behavior for the sake of others. That, that you make changes in how you live and what you do out of respect and out of love for other people, for the sake of unity. Paul's acting this way because he believes it. He's committed to it. We value the unity of the church enough in order to be culturally flexible. That actually leads me to point three here. Number three, we are as flexible as possible with our brothers and sisters. We are as flexible as possible with our brothers and sisters. Do you notice in this passage how silent Paul is? Isn't that interesting? Uh, <laughs> we're going to find as we go through the last five chapters of this book, Paul does not stop talking. He preaches, he defends himself, he talks and talks and talks and talks, long speeches in the rest of Acts. And yet in this passage, he's, he's quite silent. He is listening. He's acquiescing to the requests of the elders. He's flexing. There's a fair amount of debate, if, if, you, if you want to investigate this, there's a fair amount of debate among commentators on whether or not Paul was wrong to do what he did. Or were the elders wrong to ask him to do what he did? Is it okay that Paul went to the temple and offered sacrifices the, the way he did? Um, some people point out the fact that, that this was the event that precipitated his arrest. didn't seem to work out, out very well. But was it wrong? 
Well, remember uh, that Acts is a transitional book. Acts is a transitional uh, period. Uh, There are people uh, today in our day who are followers of Jesus and they identify themselves as Messianic Jews. That is, they believe in Jesus, but they're trying to follow the law of Moses. That's not what's happening here. This is a period of time in Jerusalem. The temple is still standing. There's a priesthood still at work. Uh, They are surrounded by a culture of men and women who follow the Mosaic law. In AD 70... What, about 13 years after this event? The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. It was after that point that these Jewish Christians, thousands of them, started to think more carefully. They'd already thought a lot about it, but they started to think even more about the relationship of the work of Jesus and the law. In fact, the book of Hebrews was written for them. It was written for them to tell them that the Old Testament law, all of it, is a sign pointing forward to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of it all. But this, that's not yet. Not yet. This is a transition period. And here it's no sin. It's not a gospel-denying act to follow the law. And Paul goes. He goes with gospel clarity. He goes, verse 25 again, with the clarity that he's not doing this as a sign that he believes that you have to follow the law in order to become a Christian. But he went strategically for the unity of the church, probably for the effectiveness of the gospels. They seek to share it in Jerusalem. Where you can, without compromising the gospel, for the sake of unity, flex. I wonder where you're flexing and how you're accommodating yourself and moving in, in light of, of the other covenant people in our congregation. Where, where's the evidence in your life that you adjust your expectations and your schedule and your preferences, your life for the sake of the unity of the church? We flex as much as we can. Now, God in his providence, we'd be grateful if he did, but we're not at this point in time trying to negotiate around biker culture in our church. But we have different preferences. We have different preferences about what we sing and about what we wear and about what instruments we play and how we interact and speak with one another for the sake of the unity of the body because we are not defined by these things we flex. You understand, there's no one in this room whose musical preferences are satisfied every week by every song in every way. Some of you, as an expression of your flexibility, you dress up more than you might prefer to come to church. They're not central to us in culturally diverse Christianity. We flex. Where are you flexing? It's part of following Jesus. It's a normal expectation of followers of Christ. I wonder who God is going to call next to our congregation, who God is going to bring to us. I wonder what would happen if Tiny would walk through the door. Or uh, someone whose iPhone playlist has an awful lot of hip-hop. And he, he comes, she comes, she doesn't dress like the rest of us. Remember, we fail. We fail if we make them like us. We fail if we make them like us. We're supposed to help them be like Jesus. That's the goal. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and how thankful we are to you for our triumphant Savior who has rescued people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. Oh, that's good news. It's what we celebrate uh, when we gather together. Uh, Father, that is good news that we celebrate, and yet there is this call involved in this, and we, we come before you to seek your grace that you would help us 
to live out this call of flexibility. Help us in our convictions, the strong convictions that we have. Free us from the judgment that sometimes comes with strong convictions. Help us with less convictions, not to look down on those who have stronger and more convictions. Father, we pray for gospel-shaped flexibility for the unity of the congregation and our evangelistic strategy. And Lord, we do pray that according to your kindness, you would bring us and we would be able to delight to see the gospel transformation in men and women like Tiny, people who love hip-hop and um, people who eat different foods than we do or different ethnicities, different language speakers. Oh, we'd be so happy. So um, work in us. Prepare us for that day that you will bless us. You're good to us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.